Has there ever been a morning like this morning? Has there ever been a morning like this Sunday morning, Resurrection Sunday morning? Has there ever been a morning like the morning when Jesus' followers who had loved him so much in his life and been so devastated by his death discovered to their utter surprise and delight that he was alive again? Has there ever been a morning or an afternoon or an evening like the one when we first encountered the risen Christ? The Jesus who is God become flesh come down to live among us. The Jesus who shows us what God is really like and what a true human being is really meant to be like. The Jesus who loves like no one else loves, who is a friend to tax collectors and prostitutes. The Jesus who casts out demons, setting captives free. The Jesus who gives sight to the blind and unstops the ears of the deaf, who cleanses lepers and causes the lame to leap and dance for joy. The Jesus who endured rejection, being spat upon, struck, mocked, betrayed, abandoned. The Jesus who was beaten bloody, hung on a cross to die, and then placed on the cold slab of a tomb for you and for me. Has there ever been a morning like the morning when we discover that that Jesus is wonderfully alive, risen anew in power to inaugurate a brand new reality for, the, for our world? Chapter 20 of John's Gospel leads us into that wonderful morning. We see it all through the eyes of a woman named Mary Magdalene, Mary from Magdala, a town on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. The Gospel of Luke tells us that Mary was a woman of some means who had helped to fund Jesus' ministry after Jesus had cast seven demons out of her. She was also a courageous woman, staying at the cross after many of his other disciples had fled. And now she was the very first human being to see and to hold the risen Christ. Fortunate Mary. It was to her, not to his own mother, that the risen Jesus chose to reveal himself. It was to her, not to Peter, not to James or John, that, that Jesus first gave the privilege of proclaiming the, the uh, Easter gospel, the news that Jesus was alive and that within, with him a whole new reality had dawned. And it's because of Mary that we have this story this morning. Incidentally, this is one of the factors that leads authenticity to the story. As you know, there are many who maintain that the first Christians made up the resurrection stories. But the fact that all four gospel accounts, we read part of Matthew's account earlier, agree that it was Mary and several other women who were first to discover the empty tomb and first to encounter the risen Christ, the, that fact makes it virtually impossible that Jesus' followers made up this story. You may know that in the days that the gospels were written, a woman's testimony was not worth much. In, in fact, it was not even admissible in court as evidence. Ladies, we can be thankful that times have changed. But in that day, men like the apostles who were trying to convey their message about Jesus to a male-dominated world would never have cited women as their primary witnesses, as being first at the empty tomb, unless, of course, that's how it really happened. 
So preacher Daryl Johnson concludes, the only explanation for the early church telling the Easter story the way it does is that this is the way it actually happened. By the way, I owe many of the insights I want to share this morning to Daryl Johnson. What we have then in the 20th chapter of John's gospel is in the words of Leslie Newbegin, an authentic memory preserved and handed on by Mary herself. I want to invite you into Mary's story this morning. Will you come back with me, back into the garden, back to the tomb, to experience scene by scene what took place there that incomparable morning? And then we'll draw some applications for ourselves today. John tells us that Mary came to the tomb on the first day of the week. The first day. Not the third day, as we might have expected John to put it. After all, Jesus had told his disciples that on the third day he would rise again. But John says that Mary came to the tomb not on the third day after Jesus' death, but on the first day of a brand new week. The first day of a brand new creation, in fact. She doesn't know it yet, but Mary awoke that morning to a whole new wonderful reality. She came to the tomb, John tells us, while it was still dark. Loyal Mary, last at the cross, now up before dawn to be at the tomb of her dead Lord. But can we see in this darkness more than an indication of just what time it was? Can we see in the darkness an indicator of what was going on in Mary's heart and soul as well? Mary's Lord is dead, the one who had set her free, the one who had treated her and loved her like no one else. Her hope, her Savior, dead. Mary's soul is in darkness. She came to the tomb, no doubt, to mourn. In that day, the final dignity afforded to a dead person was that for three days their loved ones would would mourn at their tomb. Yet Mary draws close, and as she draws close, she realizes that the stone sealing the entrance to the tomb has been removed. Stricken with panic, she runs to the disciples and she exclaims, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Notice that Mary's surprised and and dismayed to find the tomb empty. She had not come to the tomb to celebrate Easter. She had come to mourn for a dead man. Though Jesus had promised before he died that he would rise in three days, this had not registered with any of his disciples. Mary assumes most likely that the grave has been robbed. Grave robbing was a common occurrence at that time, common enough that the Roman emperor um, Claudius had issued an edict against it. Robbers would plunder graves to to steal the expensive cloths and spices which corpses were wrapped in. And perhaps Mary thinks that that's what's happened here. Or perhaps she thinks the authorities have stolen the body. Either way, she feels utterly violated. Not only have they crucified her Lord, but now they violated his grave, depriving her of the final consolation of at least being able to grieve and to weep outside of his tomb. 
Mary pours this distressing news out to Peter and, and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. This was most likely the, Peter, uh, the apostle John who wrote this gospel. These two disciples get up and run to the tomb when they hear this news. John runs faster, we're told, and he gets there first. But he stops outside. After all, Jewish law said that to touch a grave was to become unclean. Peter catches up and he barges right in. That's Peter, right? (laughs) And besides, what did it matter? What did he have to lose? His king, his savior had been taken from him. What else did he have to live for? Well, Peter stands in the empty tomb and then John comes in after him and joins him. Now let's pause for a minute and ask, why does John give us these details? Who cares who won the foot race to the tomb and who went in first? Well, let me ask you another question. If you are making up a mythical story about a great savior rising from the dead to transform all things, would you add, and oh yeah, when the two guys ran to see it, they had a race and and this guy won the race, but this other guy went in first. No. I think the only explanation for these details is that it happened this way. Again, another New Testament scholar, C.H. Dodd, describes this story saying there's something indefinably firsthand about it. Well, twice John tells us that in the tomb, first Peter, or, or first he and then Peter, see the strips of linen lying there inside. And then John says he sees the cloth which had been around Jesus' head rolled up in a separate place. Now, why stress these details about the grave clothes? Well, for two very important reasons. First, they prove that the grave was not robbed. When someone was buried in those days, their body was carefully wrapped with expensive cloths, Uh, The body with one cloth, like a mummy, and the head with a second cloth. But here the disciples discover that these very treasures that, that grave robbers would have been after are still in the tomb. And if the authorities had stolen the body, would they have taken time to unwrap the body and then to leave the linens in a pile and, and the face cloth rolled up off to the side? No, of course not. Second, these... Grave clothes still there in the tomb set apart what happened to Jesus from what happened to Lazarus a week or two before. Do you remember the story of Lazarus? He had been in the tomb four days when Jesus, with a word, called him out of the tomb and he came out alive. And how did he come out? Still wrapped up like a mummy in his grave clothes. Jesus said, unwrap him and let him go. But that's not what happened to Jesus. Jesus has come out leaving his grave clothes behind. Perhaps he just sort of evaporated through the grave clothes, leaving them there in an empty heap. However it exactly happened, the point is that Jesus' resurrection is different from Lazarus's. Lazarus was resuscitated. Jesus was resurrected. Lazarus was rescued from death only one day to die again. Jesus passed through death into a new mode of being in which he can never die again. Resurrection is not a coming back from death to this present order of existence, but a passing through death to a whole new order of existence. Was there ever a morning like this morning? 
John and Peter both take in the scene, noting the grave clothes. John believes. But it's hard to know exactly what he believes because verse 9 comments, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Like Mary, they were not expecting resurrection. The empty tomb was for the disciples not a source of joy, but a terrible crisis, a painful, confusing violation. Though some sort of light is beginning to dawn in John's mind. Well, then he and Peter both go back home. Why? Were they afraid? We find later in verse 19 that that evening they were together with the doors locked for afraid of for fear of the leaders. But Mary stays at the tomb. Faithful Mary, last at the cross, first at the tomb, last at the tomb. Mary does not know where her Lord is, but she will stay at the last place she knew him to be, and there she will weep. She grieves. She's no doubt utterly confused, utterly lost, utterly violated and heartbroken. Peter and John were no help to her. Where is she to turn? Well, she looks into the tomb and now she sees two angels there. One was sitting where Jesus' head had been, one at his feet. It's been noted that Jesus died between two criminals and rose between two angels. But where else in the Bible do we see two angels? What about the cherubim who flanked the atonement cover of the Ark of the Covenant? That most holy place where atonement was made for sins, where God's glory rested, where the living God came to be present and to meet with human beings. Now that reality finds expression in the risen Christ. He takes away our sins. He is the glory of God himself. He, and through him, God is present to meet with us. Has there ever been a morning like this morning? The angels ask Mary, why are you weeping? Surely they know why. But they're gently pointing out that Mary's tears do not flow in sync with the new reality. Then Mary becomes aware of another presence behind her. How long had that presence been there? He's always there before we become aware of him. Mary mistakes the man for the gardener. Perhaps her grief blinds her to his living presence. Perhaps her expectation leads her astray. She's still looking for a dead Lord. Or is it that Jesus being transformed looks different now? Yet in a way, Mary is right. This man is the gardener. Walking in the garden that had become a graveyard in the cool of the morning on the first day of a brand new creation. The man, like the angels, asks her, Woman, why are you weeping? He knows. He always knows why we're weeping. He adds, who are you looking for? It's a searching question. Who or what are you looking for? Mary was looking for the wrong thing. She was looking for a dead Lord, a body, a corpse. God was about to give her so much more. Mary answers 
If you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go and get him. Mary's love may be misguided and confused, but it's deep and it's genuine. She longs to be with him, to care for him, even if he's dead. Then the moment happens where reality breaks through her darkness. Jesus says, Mary, it's impossible to know how to say that word. Earlier, Jesus had promised, I am the good shepherd. The sheep listen to my voice. I call my own sheep by name and they lead me out. Mary, notice what awakens Mary to this new Easter reality. Not his face, not his touch, but his voice calling her name. And that's the way it is for us. It's the voice of the shepherd, the personal loving voice of Jesus calling our name. That's what finally breaks through our darkness and makes his wonderful presence known. Mary, Cheryl, John, Liz, Anne, David. Now that Jesus is raised, we live in a new reality in which we do not touch him or see his face, at least not yet. But we hear his word and we know him by his voice. That's why we read this book. That's why we listen to messages on his word. Well, Mary is overjoyed. Rabboni, my teacher, she exclaims. Claims. Then she throws her arms around him. I mean, wouldn't you? I'd like to do that this morning. Jesus says to her, don't hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Why can't Mary keep holding on to Jesus? Well, two reasons. First, as we've just seen, now that Jesus has died and risen, we relate to him in a new way. No longer do we touch him and see him in flesh and blood. Notice he calls his disciples brothers, and that Greek word includes sisters too. This is the first time that Jesus calls his followers brothers and sisters. For the most part, he had called them disciples, students. Then on the Thursday night before he had died, he called them friends. But now he calls us brothers and sisters. Why? Because he says, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Wow. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus has opened up to us a new reality, a new relationship with the father. Up to this point, Jesus' relationship with his father had been holy ground. It was uniquely shared with him and God alone. He was God's only son. He and the father shared an intimacy and love unlike any other. And yet now Jesus says his God is our God. His father is our father too. Now as a result of his death on the cross and his rising again and his ascending to the father to pour out his spirit 
among us. Now he is inviting us in to the relationship, to the union that God the Son shares with God the Father. Was there ever a morning like this morning? But there's a second reason that Mary can't hold on to Jesus, and that is that this news is so good that it must be shared. And so Mary runs, her heart bursting with joy, the first human being set with the good news. Jesus sends her to tell the others, who will in turn tell the whole world. They will tell them that Jesus who was crucified is very much alive and that a new day has dawned for the whole world. Okay, well, what do we today take from Mary's story? Several lessons. First, long before we realize it, the risen Jesus is present among us. He was there with Mary before she recognized him. He was there with the two disciples who walked the road to Emmaus, if you remember that resurrection story, long before they recognized that it was his presence who was there with them. How long was it before you realized that he was there? When was it this morning that you became aware that he's with us in this room? Because he's risen from the dead and ascended to his father and sent his spirit into our hearts, Jesus is now always there, always with us. Second lesson, Mary's story tells us why we are not always aware of Jesus' presence. It took Mary a long time to recognize what had happened that morning, didn't it? She couldn't see the facts that were right there in front of her face. She was blind to the presence which was with her. Why? Grief. Our grief blinds us. Mary was filled with sorrow. She had lost a loved one. She was overwhelmed with disappointment. She was, she was hurting and discouraged because of the injustice in the world and because of the brokenness of life, like we often are. Many of us here this morning know about grief. And so powerful are, are the pain and the disappointment of life that they blind us to the other great reality which is right before us, the presence of our risen Lord. Third lesson that Mary's story teaches us, and that is that in our grief and disappointment with life, we often seek the wrong things. What did Jesus ask Mary there at the tomb? Whom are you seeking? Mary was seeking the wrong thing. She was seeking a dead body, not a living Lord. She was seeking a what, not a whom. Often it's the same with us. We are seeking comfort. We're seeking peace. We're seeking meaning. We're seeking healing. We're seeking encouragement. We're seeking direction. We're seeking worth. And we're not finding what we're seeking. That's because what is not the point. The point is whom. The point is him. When we find him, 
we find comfort. When we find Him, we find peace. When we find Him, we find meaning and healing and encouragement and direction and worth. Fourth lesson. Mary's story teaches us what the risen Jesus does when he makes himself known to us. He brings us into a relationship with himself better than the relationship that his first disciples had with him. Better? Better than Mary and Peter and John had when they could see Jesus face to face, when they could touch and hold their Savior? Yes, better. Jesus says, don't hold on to me. Go to my brothers. Tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Because of his death and resurrection, because he went back to the Father and sent his Spirit, Jesus has opened up to us the way to a new relationship, not only with him, but also with his Father. Back on Thursday... Before his crucifixion, Jesus had consoled his distraught disciples. He had just told them that he was going to be betrayed and crucified and that he was leaving them. And yet he promised them in John 14, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father and you are in me, and I am in you. Now that Jesus died and rose again, now that he has gone to the Father and poured out his Spirit into our hearts, he has invited us into the relationship that he enjoys with the Father. Now we can know the risen Christ who is with us wherever we go and and in whatever we go through. And more than that now, we can know the Father. Or to put it more accurately, by the Spirit, we can share in Jesus' knowing of the Father. Was there ever a morning like this morning? (laughs) When Jesus was on this earth, what set him apart and grounded his identity was his relationship with his father. He knew the father. He enjoyed the security of knowing that the father was crazy about him. He delighted in the father's will and relished that the father delighted in him. He sought only to bring about the or to bring about, yes, the glory of the father. And and he sought only to trust in the father's care. As the Son of God who had come down from God, Jesus enjoyed a communion with God like no other. And now, the risen Jesus says, I am inviting you to come with me into that relationship. I'll say it again. Has there ever been a morning like this morning? Fifth lesson, finally. Mary's story teaches us that the good news is meant to be shared. Preacher Bruce Milne comments, as Mary held on to her Lord, there was a group of broken men and women no great distance away who had as much need as Mary to know of his rising. Milne continues, 
Tragically, over the centuries, the Christian community has shown a far greater interest in sitting at Jesus' feet, holding on to him amid the comfort of his presence, than in going out into the world to share the good news of the risen Lord with broken, needy hearts who have as much a valid claim to know of him as we do. No wonder Jesus sent her to tell the good news to his disciples. And no wonder later he would send them to tell that same news to the whole world. And so Milne concludes, Easter is gospel and it belongs to the whole world. Has there ever been a morning like this morning? Jesus is risen and he is here. May we recognize and enjoy his presence. May we celebrate him together and the new reality that he brings. And may we spread the news to the whole world. Happy Easter.